0: Hello guys, I'm Candace, and this is Crime on the Record. Our topic today is based on a case that some say has been solved, but others think there is someone still out there walking around free as a bird because cops got tunnel vision. We're talking about the case of Sandy and James Melgar. Now, I will be calling him Jim since that's what everyone called him. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave a review if you're listening on the podcast. And if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe and hit the like button. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon. Memberships start at just a dollar and include extras from ad-free listening to bonus content. Now, while YouTube is still on their mission of giving timeouts, we do have our information up on the screen for those watching on YouTube who would like to contribute in that way. You'll see it scrolling across on the little ticker. As always, we're grateful for all of you guys and your constant support of the show. So, with all that out of the way, let's get started with today's discussion on the Melgars. So, this is Sandy and Jim Melgar. In the days leading up to Christmas in 2012, there was a shocking incident in Houston in which Sandy Melgar, a woman that resided in the area, was discovered bound inside her closet while a chair was obstructing the door. Tragically, her husband Jim was found lifeless in a separate closet. Jim, who had immigrated from Guatemala to the U.S. at a young age, succumbed sadly to his fatal injuries, characterized by blunt force trauma and multiple stab wounds. So Sandy and Jim's story trace back to their high school years. So they were high school sweethearts. And after graduating, they embarked on a wonderful life journey together, eventually tying the knot and were blessed with a daughter. Their shared faith led them to join the Jehovah's Witnesses community. However, Sandy's life sadly was plagued by various health conditions. She had lupus, epilepsy, hypothyroidism, and the need for hip replacements, which I cannot even imagine having to deal with one of those things, much less all of them. So she had to have had it rough. Her daughter, unfortunately, had witnessed her mother endure violent seizures and even paralysis on one side of her body. I believe that's how they found out she had lupus that she um, became paralyzed on one side of her body. And, you know, obviously as anyone would kind of freaked out. And when uh, she got to the hospital or, or wherever and the doctor was checking her over, they figured out that it was lupus causing it. So I can't even imagine that being the way you had to find out. So, Because of this, over time, Jim gradually took on the role of Sandy's caregiver as her health continued to decline. On the eve of their wedding anniversary, which was December 22, 2012, the couple indulged in a special evening. They enjoyed a delightful meal at their favorite Mexican restaurant before making a brief stop at a local CVS to grab some drink mixers. So that sounds like a pretty good timeout. You know, just you, no kids, going to eat some Mexican, stop at the CVS, grab some drink mixers. And then upon returning home, they retreated to the comfort of their bathroom jacuzzi, trying to, I guess, probably cherish every precious moment together that they had. You know, it's sad that I think sometimes life gets away from us and we're going a thousand miles an hour and we forget to you know, kind of spend that quality time with one another. So, you know, at least on times such as holidays and anniversaries, we take a moment to slow down a little bit and and enjoy each other. So I'm glad they were able to do that. However, the tranquility was abruptly shattered when the family's four dogs erupted in a frenzied barking fit in the backyard. Now, concerned about the commotion, Jim left Sandy in the jacuzzi and ventured outside to investigate. After a prolonged absence, Sandy decided to exit the jacuzzi and proceeded to her closet. So I guess she realized, you know, I don't know what's going on down there, but Jim hasn't come back yet and I'm tired of sitting in this jacuzzi by myself. So she gets out, she goes to her closet and she settles into a chair that she has in in the closet and begins applying lotion to her skin. Okay, so this is the 22nd, the night of the 22nd. Now, the following day, December 23rd, the Melgars had planned a joyous family gathering. Jim's brother, Herman Melgar, along with his family, eagerly arrived at their house at 4.30 p.m. Expecting a warm welcome, they knocked on the door, only to receive no response. Alarmed, Herman noticed one side of the garage doors left ajar. And... I imagine that means one of the garage doors was left ajar. So I'm going to guess there was probably a two or three car garage and one of the garage doors was left ajar. So um, that was written a little oddly, but I'm guessing it was just that one of the, the garage doors was still up. So he goes in and determined to ensure everyone's safety. He enters through the garage and unlocks the front door for the rest of the family. With growing apprehension, they called out for Jim and Sandy, desperately seeking an answer that sadly never came. In a startling turn of events, Herman recounted that he suddenly heard desperate cries for help emanating from the house. Without hesitation, he dashed towards the master bathroom where he discovered a chair obstructing the entrance to the walk-in closet, which we already know has Sandy inside. But at this time, Herman has no idea what's going on. He just knows he gets in, hears these cries for help, runs upstairs and he sees it's coming from the walk-in closet that has a chair in front of it. I can't imagine what Herman was thinking. So determined to aid his sister-in-law, Herman swiftly moved the chair aside and swung open the closet door. And there he came face to face with Sandy Melgar, her arms and legs bound tightly with a sense of urgency Herman struggled to untie Sandy while she urged him to locate a pair of scissors to expedite things. As the knots were undone, a harrowing discovery awaited them. In the master bedroom, just a mere 30 feet away from the closet where Sandy was found, lay Jim Melgar's lifeless body. He was unclothed, bearing the signs of brutal assault and stab wounds. His legs were bound with a telephone cord and a loosely tied rope encircled his chest deepening the tragedy that had unfolded within the house. I'm unsure why a rope would be encircled across his chest. I mean, I I don't, unless, I don't know, maybe they had him tied to something earlier. It just sounds kind of odd to me. Um, Upon further investigation, authorities revealed a grim and brutal scene that unfolded within the Melgar residence. Jim's body bore more than 50 wounds and injuries, a combination of stab, cutting, and blunt force trauma. So someone used whatever sharp object to stab and cut him and then beat him with some kind of blunt force object. Um, Celestina Rossi, an expert in blood pattern analysis and crime reconstruction, testified that Jim displayed numerous defensive wounds on both hands, indicative of his valiant attempts to defend himself or ward off the attacker's assault. Based on her analysis, Rossi asserted that Jim and his assailant engaged in a fierce struggle within the confines of the bedroom closet, ultimately resulting in his tragic demise. The extent of Jim's injuries was severe, with not only 31 cuts and stabs, but also significant damage inflicted upon his skull, brain, and facial bones from the brutal beating he endured. So I cannot imagine what this poor man went through. The scene further revealed signs of disturbance. So drawers were forcibly pulled open, jewelry boxes had been rummaged through, and a wallet and purse lay overturned on the bed, indicating a possible motive of robbery or theft, which... I'm sure if I came in and saw that, that's exactly what I would be thinking. In a chilling twist, though, investigators discovered a white blouse and a kitchen knife submerged in the jacuzzi tub near the master bathroom where Sandy was ultimately found, which is odd. I'm not really sure why. Okay, so uh, the knife or a kitchen knife, you know, you throw it in the jacuzzi tub, but a blouse I mean, who throws their shirt in there? That's So I thought that sounded kind of odd. Amidst the chaos, a surprising revelation emerged. Concealed from view within the bedroom closet where Jim's lifeless body was discovered, law enforcement stumbled upon a loaded gun and a securely locked safe, adding layers of intrigue and raising questions about the nature of the events that unfolded on that night. The investigation took a perp- perplexing, sorry, I don't know why that word catches me every time, a perplexing turn as Sandy struggled to recollect the events that unfolded on that fateful night. So her memory proved pretty hazy and fragmented, which made it challenging to piece together the sequence of events. She mentioned a peculiar incident of a mysterious car possibly telling them after leaving the CPS parking lot. So, again, they had gone to CVS for the drink mixers, and she tells them that, you know, after they left, for a little bit, she had thought that there was possibly a car telling them. But her recollection grew vague as the vehicle eventually veered in a different direction. So, she couldn't really tell them much more. Um, that's, That's pretty much all she remembered was, you know... Thinking, oh my goodness, there's this car that may be following us. They've been behind us this whole time. And then she just remembered the car kind of veering off. So that's all she could give them as far as the information on the vehicle. According to Sandy's account, she proceeded into the closet to change clothes when she got out of the jacuzzi. And from that point forward, her memory became a void until she regained consciousness she adamantly maintained that she had neither heard nor witnessed any attack on her husband. She relayed to the police that she experienced a blackout, possibly resulting from either hitting her head or being struck during the incident, compounded by the possibility of an epileptic seizure. Which, I mean, stands to reason, you know, if someone... Okay, so let's think of it this way. Jim had all of these cuts and marks on him and stab wounds, blunt force trauma, all of that. But I imagine, you know, as they said, there were defensive wounds. So it seems Jim was fighting back pretty hard. But now with Sandy, if somebody had come up behind her and hit her and knocked her out, there really wasn't much reason to continue to hit her. I mean, she was she was down. She was unconscious. So... I mean, that very well could have been exactly what happened. I mean, that made sense to me hearing it. Um, despite her claims, though, law enforcement found themselves skeptical of her narrative. The notion that she remained unaware of her husband's brutal murder in the adjacent room puzzled investigators. The circumstances surrounding Sandy's account raised doubts and posed significant challenges in reconciling her alleged lack of knowledge with the gruesome scene that unfolded. The Milgar family, knowing that they had shared 32 years of apparent marital bliss, steadfastly stood by Sandy's side. They expressed disbelief that she would suddenly resort to stabbing her husband to death. I mean, after 32 years of marriage and seemingly having a great marriage, no problems that anyone knew of, their unwavering support highlighted the stark contrast between Sandy's portrayal and the accusations against her, further complicating the intricate web of circumstances surrounding the tragic incident. Now, following the initial incident, Sandy was not immediately arrested, and she moved on with her life, leaving behind the haunting memories, which I cannot imagine how hard that was to do, but... She's trying, you know, so this happens at the end of 2012, so she goes through all of 2013, and I imagine, you know, as a therapist, we do continuing education, and one of the things that I know I've always heard throughout, you know, all of, all of these different things on grief that we go over is that, you know, everybody grieves differently, but they say, that on average, the average amount of time that someone has this significant grief before they start coming out of it is a year and a half to two years. So if this happened at the end of 2012, then you have 2013, the end of that. So that's a year. And then you get into the summer of 2014. So that's a year and a half. So I imagine that Sandy is just starting to come out of this haze of just horrible grief. It's been a year and a half. She's starting to finally probably come back around and feel like she has her life again. But then that summer of 2014, a significant turn of events occurs as Sandy was indicted for Jim's murder. The case subsequently underwent a three-year journey, finally reaching a trial in 2017. So not only does she not even get indicted until 14, it took until 2017 to even go to trial. I can't imagine having this just hanging over me, just out there, you know, not knowing if you're going to end up in prison forever or if you're going home. I mean, good gosh, that's a long I mean, that is that is a lot of time. Now, during the trial, prosecutor Colleen Barnett put forth a theory suggesting that Sandy may have desired a divorce, but feared the consequences of being ostracized by the Jehovah's Witness community. Now, I get I mean, like okay, I don't mean to laugh, but it's always crazy to me and almost comical that people have the thought that you know what, my religion does not look kindly on divorce, so I don't want to get divorced. But does your religion look kindly on murder? Because it's ridiculous to me that that people have this thought process that it is so wrong and it's going to look so bad for them to get divorced, but it's not going to look bad if they murder someone. Like, the church is just going to get over that. So... I mean, that's here nor there, but it it just seems comical to me that people have that kind of thought process. Again, not saying that Sandy did. This is just what the prosecutor was saying. So, Barnett, prosecutor, argued that Sandy had enticed Jim into a scenario involving the tying of his legs with a telephone cord, possibly as part of a sexual game, only to take him by surprise and brutally end his life with a large kitchen knife. She contended that the crime scene had been meticulously staged, pointing to photographs displaying neatly arranged drawers, contradicting a scenario of robbery or forced entry. Now, in response, the defense attorneys painted a contrasting image of a content, sorry, content. I don't know why I can't speak tonight for some reason. So, um, the image of a content and harmonious marital relationship. So, again, you know, they're saying that they had a great marriage and have been married for years. They presented evidence suggesting alternative possibilities, such as demonstrating how Sandy could have removed, maneuvered, rather, a chair into position beneath the doorknob using a small rug or pillow sham. Now, this is the prosecution again. So, prosec- prosecution gives all this story of, you know, look, this scene was staged because everything's so neatly done. And then the defense, you know, counters that by saying, no, they had this perfect marriage. They were content, harmonious, had a great relationship. Everything was fine. Then the prosecution hits back and says, well, you know, we have done some, tests and we have seen that Sandy could have maneuvered a chair into position beneath the doorknob by using a rug. So they're saying that she could have put a chair on a rug, got into the closet and shut the door and then reached out from under the door and pulled the rug until the chair pulled up against the door. Now, okay, that of makes sense that you could do that but how do you get the chair to lean and go under the knob I mean I don't really understand that part so you know you yeah okay you could slide the chair up against the door with this rug theory but I don't know how you tilt the chair and get it under the knob without just knocking it over like that because think about it anytime you've ever if you have ever, but a lot, a lot of us can say that we have had to put a chair under a knob because, you know, there are times you go to places they don't have locks and you want to make sure nobody's getting in your room. So, you know, if you think about it, you always take the chair and you kind of tilt it and you kind of go from the bottom up to nudge it up into the doorknob. So that's sliding the chair, dipping down and then going back up under the knob. How the hell are you doing that with a small rug? That just, it made no sense to me. So that theory sounded just crazy to me. Um, Then uh, they stated that Sandy could have tied her own hands behind her back. And they illustrated to the jury how she could have done this. So I guess, you know, in court, they showed how she could have gone about tying her hands behind her back herself. Further scrutiny involved an examination of Sandy's medical records, revealing that she had not reported any seizures to her primary care physician for several years preceding her husband's murder. The prosecution argued that her recollection of a seizure only emerged after his death. But, you know, I don't know, I don't have epilepsy, but, you know, just because she wasn't reporting constant seizures, I don't know that that necessarily says anything. I mean, you could, I would imagine you could have a history of seizures and then get on a medication that controls them better. And I would think that it's probably like anything else where you can have breakthrough episodes. So, you know, you'll have medicine that pretty much keeps the condition from being a, a full-time thing. But there are times that you still will have breakthrough, whatever, pain, headaches. You know, like you take migraine medication. Okay, you no longer have constant migraines. That doesn't mean you're never going to get one again. So even though you're taking the medicine, you may still have a breakthrough migraine every now and then. So to me, that doesn't say a lot because if she had had seizures and, possibly going on a medication that was supposed to keep them from occurring. If she had one every now and then brought on by some kind of huge stressor, then she may not have even thought to bring that up to her primary care physician. And it could be that she had not had a seizure because the medication was controlling it until somebody slugged her in the back of the head. So that didn't really do a lot for me. Now, the defense team highlighted the absence of physical evidence implicating her. They emphasized that her hands showed no signs of injury or any indication of attempts to clean up the crime scene. So, apparently, she had no cuts, bruises, anything. And we all know from being true crime people that it is very hard to stab someone without getting cut yourself. Especially if he had 31 stab wounds. I mean, we're not talking like a knife that has a hilt on it. And, you know, there weren't any gloves found there. So she would have been doing it with just her hand. So as hard as he fought back, I find it really hard to believe that she could have stabbed him with a regular kitchen knife 31 times as he's fighting her and not cut herself. So that's tough. Also complicating matters for the prosecution were uh, male and female DNA being found at various locations within the house, such as dresser drawer pulls, so the little pulls that you have on your drawers, door handles, and bathroom door handles that did not match anyone in the Melgar family. The defense argued that these unidentified DNA profiles belonged to strangers rather than implicating Sandy. They also pointed out there was a blood on the handle of a safe that was never tested. I don't know why I said a blood. I think originally as I was writing my little bullet points down that I thought they said a bloody handprint. So I typed a a bloody handprint. And then I was like, wait, they didn't say handprint; They just said blood. So, sorry. I'm reading back my information wrong for you guys. Um, But there was blood on the handle of a safe. And they didn't test it. Which, why the hell not? Why would you not test this? Like, you have DNA that has shown up in this house that doesn't belong to any of the family members. And blood on the handle of a safe, which would again show robbery. And you didn't test any of that? That's ridiculous. But after deliberating for approximately eight hours over two days, the jury initially comes to a deadlock. And then ultimately on the second day, renders a guilty verdict against Sandy Melgar for the murder of her husband. At her sentencing, she received a 27-year prison term. So far, all of her appeals have been denied. Now troubled by the outcome, one of Sandy's family members sought assistance reaching out to Bob Ruff. Now if you don't know Bob Ruff, he's a former fire chief and he became the host of a criminal investigation podcast called Truth and Justice. And they reached out to him and asked for help. And Bob Ruff went, I mean, he's in to the I mean he's investigative. Like we don't investigate, we are just, you know, um, getting the information out there so that if anyone ever has, you know, tips or anything, they'll know. And just to tell the, the stories, but we don't do investigative journalism, but now Bob Ruff, he investigates these things. He d- he does deep dives into some of his cases. And so if you want to hear a more in-depth story, um, About the Melgars, I would really encourage you to go to Truth and Justice and listen to the episodes that Bob Ruff has done on the Melgar case because he has come up with a lot of information. And I mean, he really deep dives in there. So, amid the aftermath of her conviction, a glimmer of hope emerged as Bob Ruff, a firm believer in the collective power of crowdsourcing, mobilized his substantial podcast audience of approximately a quarter million listeners to reevaluate the case. Now, I don't know what Bob Ruff's doing that we're not doing, but we do not have a quarter of a million listeners. So uh, maybe we should be out here investigating more. I don't know. But I do know that I've heard Bob Ruff say that he had to quit his full-time job as a fire chief when he began doing this because truth and justice is a full-time job. Unfortunately, we don't have those kind of listeners and those kind of numbers, so I can't quit my day job. So sorry, guys. You know, uh, YouTube is not allowing us to monetize to the level that I can just investigate cases for you guys. So, But again, you know, go check out Bob uh, Bob Ruff's uh, Truth and Justice podcast because, you know, He aimed to harness the collective investigative skills of his dedicated listeners to shed new light on the matter. Now, Ruff Ruff has postulated alternative scenarios, suggesting that the assailants may have gained entry into the house when Jim opened the back door to let the dogs in. So, you know, he thinks maybe Jim went down. The dogs were barking because they wanted inside. He opens the door to let them in from the backyard and that's how the assailant gets in. Now, he also proposed the possibility that the intruders had already been inside the house while Jim went to retrieve the dogs. So maybe instead of them being right at the back door barking, maybe they were off in the yard barking at something. Jim goes outside to retrieve the dogs and these assailants run through the back door and Jim never even realizes they'd come in. Um, Sandy herself maintained uncertainty regarding the state of the back door as she had not utilized it that day and was unaware if it had been left unlocked. So she couldn't even tell them whether or not the back door was locked or not. So honestly, an assailant could have come in at any time if the door had been unlocked. Adding to the development, high profile defense attorney Kathleen Zellner, Now, most of you are going to know her for her representation of Stephen Avery in the widely-watched Netflix series Making a Murderer. So, Kathleen Zellner announced her involvement in Sandy's case. Zellner's reputation for unearthing new evidence and championing championing justice in high-profile cases provided a glimmer of optimism for her defense. So, you know, they have Bob Ruff get involved and then they have Kathleen Zellner involved. And so, you know, I can see how the family has a kind of glimmer of hope and maybe a light at the end of the tunnel. But we all know how the justice system does not to like to admit when they do something wrong. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know where this will go. Um, Sandy's daughter expressed her unwavering support for her mother, expressing hope that the new DNA evidence would eventually surface, potentially providing a compelling alternative perspective and ultimately clearing her mother's name. So, you know, she's hoping this new DNA evidence will be tested and something will surface that will say, Here's your alternative perspective on this case. Here's your alternative suspect. Something that will clear her mother of doing this. Now, as the case progressed, Liz, which is their daughter, revealed that recent DNA testing conducted on the safe yielded results that pointed in a different direction, which did ignite renewed curiosity and raise the prospect of a breakthrough in the investigation. So... You know, in the beginning, Sandy's daughter was expressing her support and really hoping something would surface. And then, you know, as the case progressed, again, Liz was able to come out and say, hey, they did some DNA testing on that safe. And those DNA results do not match my mother. So hopefully that is a breakthrough in the case. Recent developments in Sandy's case have injected renewed hope into the pursuit of justice. Liz disclosed that a significant breakthrough emerged from DNA testing. Quote, it did come back to a male who is not my father, end quote. Notably, the DNA profile displayed no familial connections or ties to their family, potentially pointing to- towards an alternative individual involved in the crime. So this is not even anyone in their family. I mean, we're talking this DNA is it has nothing to do with the Melgar household. So this had to be some kind of complete stranger or or at least someone not involved in their family of any kind. And it wasn't Sandy. And it was a male. So and, and this is the blood. So that's a male's DNA. And then they said they found, you know, DNA of male and female. So we don't even know how many people were in this house that night. And neither does Sandy because she can't remember anything if we go by her story. So in 2022, the Innocence Project of Texas, renowned for its dedication to exonerating wrongfully convicted individuals, announced their involvement in Sandy's case. Their commitment to seeking truth and justice added an additional layer of support and expertise to the ongoing efforts. Undeterred by the current circumstances, the family continues to offer a substantial $100,000 reward for any information that may shed light on the truth surrounding the case. This generous incentive underscores their unwavering determination to uncover all relevant details and ensure justice is served. Sadly, Sandy Melgar is presently serving a 27-year prison sentence, but she does remain hopeful for a brighter future. With her eligibility for parole set in 2031, the pursuit of new evidence and the involvement of legal advocates provide a glimmer of optimism for a potential reconsideration of her case, hopefully before we get to that time. But, you know, I got to tell you, we know, again, that these cases move through the court systems very, very slowly. And the courts do not like to, to backtrack. They don't like to walk things back. They don't like coming up there and saying, we screwed up. We got tunnel vision. We landed on the wife and we never looked anywhere else. So, it's 2023. We're halfway through 2023. So... I truly hope that we don't have to wait for her to get to 2031 and become eligible for parole to finally get out if she truly is innocent. And by all accounts, I personally think that she probably is. I mean, obviously none of us were there, so I can't say 100% for a fact that she did not do this but it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you've got male blood on the safe. And I think that all of the evidence pretty much points towards a man anyway, because, you know, it's going, let's just be honest here. You know, I'm not a feminist, but even if I were like, let's call a spade a spade. It's, there are inherent differences between men and women. And, Men physiologically are stronger than women 90% of the time. They have more muscle mass and upper body strength than a female counterpart. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's not any woman in the world that couldn't beat up some guy. I get that. I've seen Ronda Rousey. I get it. I understand. But what I'm saying is, is that with all things being equal... You put a a man and a woman standing beside one another, they have the same level of skill in, you know, combat, fighting, and are approximately the same size, and that man is going to win out every time because he has more upper body strength. So it is very hard for me to believe that he could not fight off his wife, especially if we're talking about someone who was that frail with her health. Now, we're going to say she has all this stuff going on lupus, uh, bad hips, seizures, hypothyroidism. I mean, she's got a, a slew of things going on. And it shows that he fought like hell to survive. And it's hard for anyone to convince me that his tiny little wife would have been able to stab him 31 times and bludgeon the shit out of him without him being able to get her off of him without him being able to cause some kind of bodily harm to her without her having cut herself with that knife. I mean, I'm not saying she couldn't have done it. You catch somebody by surprise and you can stab them fast enough. I'm, I'm sure you probably could do a good bit of damage and, and that could compensate for that differential in upper body strength. But we're talking about 31 stab wounds and she had not a mark on her. So, you know, even if she got the drop on him, I don't see them seeing those kind of defensive wounds on him, showing him fighting back and nothing on her. Whoever he fought back, I feel like probably has some wounds. They probably walked away with some cuts, some bruises, some, you know, who knows what, but it really, really is going to be hard for me to ever wrap my head around this being Sandy Melgar that did this. So, you know, I like to hear as always what you guys think. Let us know in the notes. Um, or shoot us an email, whatever's more convenient for you. But again, I find it hard to believe she did this, but I am always open to listening to others' points of view. Maybe you're hearing this and you've heard something or thought of something that I haven't thought of, or maybe you've heard a different aspect of the case that I didn't come across. But from everything I could find, I'm not seeing anything that convinces me so far. That is it for this episode of Crime on the Record. Thank you guys, as always, for your constant support of us, and we will be back soon. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do.